Amen, and good morning to you. Um, Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. I'll be reading from verses 36. We'll travel to the end of the chapter, verse 41. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to meet me there as we read together. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kezerowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. It is good to be back after an absence, absence of a couple of weeks. Um, for those of you who may not know or haven't heard, my wife and I uh, had our fourth child uh, back on October 28th. And so I took a couple of weeks off, um, and uh, it was a joy for our family to be able to um, be a family of, of six of us together uh, for the first time. And I want to personally thank you uh, for, for all of the messages and words of encouragement and the gifts and those of you that brought meals. Uh, it was a great blessing to us um, to see the church uh, minister to us. It was uh, very just rewarding, and I can't say enough how much of a blessing you guys have been to us during this time. Um, the whole family is doing great. We do appreciate your support, and I would ask just for continuous uh, prayers uh, and graciousness as Sarah and I figure out how to uh, have four kids. Um, I, I feel like I just figured out how to have three um, it, just in time for a fourth. And so um, we once again, we appreciate your support and uh, we know God is good and God is gracious. And so in God's graciousness, let's look to his word today and see what he would have to say to us. Once again, we'll be in Acts chapter 15. Verses 36 through 41, we'll pick up right where we left off a couple of weeks ago, the last time I was here. Verse 36, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the church. Would you pray with me? Father, we know that you are gracious to us and patient with us in our misunderstanding. And so I pray that our time together right now would bring clarity through your word. As we discover your very heartbeat in your word, would your spirit show us where we are ignorant? And would he help us understand? And by Jesus' authority, we pray all of these things to you. Amen. The last time we were in Acts together, we left Paul and Barnabas in the city of Antioch. If you recall, they had just returned from Jerusalem, uh, where they engaged with other Christian leaders about a particular subject of debate. Uh, there were some believers in the area that were teaching and claimed that non-Jewish Christians had to become Jewish before they became Christians. And this just infuriated Paul and Barnabas to the point that they actually traveled to Jerusalem from Antioch to try and cut off this false teaching at the root. And when they arrive in Jerusalem, we see the Christian leaders, they gathered together and they determined by God's actions and by God's word that we are actually indeed saved by grace and not saved by our own works. 
And that the Gentiles don't need to become Jewish first. They don't need to follow a certain criteria to be saved. Um, but then a week after we looked at that passage, we looked at the very next passage, and we saw that uh, at, at this council, the Jerusalem council, they did determine to, to ask and require the Gentiles to follow certain guidelines, not for their salvation, uh, but rather uh, these guidelines were set before them so that they would keep unity in, in peace with other Jewish people. They were some non-essential things that they wanted the Gentiles to follow in order that the, the Jewish people, that they would have an audience with them, that they would be unified with them, that they wouldn't stumble over these things. When we looked at those passages in Acts 15 earlier, we spent a good deal of time talking about uh, having unity in the essentials and liberty in the non-essentials. We spoke about how we need to be an iron pillar when it comes to the truth of the gospel when it comes to the essentials of our faith, those are things we cannot budge on. But for the non-essentials, we need to be like a soft reed in the wind. I mentioned three weeks ago, if we remain an iron pillar in the non-essentials, it will cause fragmentation in the church. If we are so adamant about holding on to our convictions, holding on to our own opinions, our non-essential convictions and opinions, and, and we in turn try and force others to hold on to those as well, it will divide the church. And you don't need to look any further than this passage that we read a moment ago to see this at play, where we have Paul and Barnabas of all people sucked into a dispute with one another that results in a significant fallout. Paul and Barnabas are, are giants of the faith. They are some of the most influential and godly men in all of history, and they, even they, are not immune to division. As J.C. Ryle has said, the best of men are yet men at best. The best of men are still men at their best. In other words, no matter how holy, how godly, how sanctified someone is, as long as sin is still present in the heart, we are susceptible to its infection. And one of the main objectives, one of the main goals of our sin is division. That is what sin ultimately sets out to do is to divide. Sin divides. It divides us from God and it divides us from each other. And so let's not think for a second that this, this topic, that this passage is not worth our consideration. If you've been tracking with us through Acts, you read the text and you have to think, what happened? What happened here? We didn't get into detail much with, with this last time we were in Acts, but um, after the decision was made that the Gentiles should follow certain uh, guidelines to keep unity with Jewish believers, Paul and Barnabas actually traveled with two other men named Judas and Silas to Antioch to deliver this message to the Gentiles. And if you were to look back in verse 33, um, it, it, I'm sorry, a little bit before that, 
It says in there that they, they, they rejoiced at this. Verse 31, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody was, was unified when they delivered this decision to the Gentiles in Antioch. And then even more so, Judas and Silas kind of stick around and they encourage the brothers and sisters there and they, and they teach them. And even when they were sent back to Jerusalem, they were sent off in peace. And then Paul and Barnabas stayed behind in Antioch because Antioch is like their home church. It's, it's their, their hub, uh, when they're around and they, they, they are teaching and they are preaching God's word in Antioch. And it, it seems like everybody's living in harmony together. Everybody is unified. And so what happens between verse 35 when everybody seems to be unified and verse 36 through 41 where we actually see significant uh, division and a significant disagreement? It seems as though Paul and Barnabas fail to apply this principle of unity immediately after they just urged the Gentiles to be unified. So what happened? Well, something we must understand, one of the things that happened is actually a passage of time. There's, as it reads, it, it appears that Paul and Barnabas get in this fight right off the tails of this story about liberty and the non-essentials. But in all reality, there is a significant amount of time that passes between verse 35 and verse 36. Verse 36 begins with the phrase, and after some days. And to us, that sounds like it could be maybe a couple of weeks, a month at most. But this is actually about two to three years after the Jerusalem council. There's been a significant amount of time that has elapsed. But Paul and Barnabas are there, right? And they've, they've been preaching. They've been teaching in Antioch. And then Paul gets that itch to, to the travel, right? He's, he's got the traveler's itch. And he goes to Barnabas and he says, hey, I'm ready to go on the road again. He suggests to Barnabas, hey, let's go and revisit all of those churches that we planted on our first missionary journey. It's been a couple of years, and so I want to check in and see how they're doing. It's not like our relationship now with churches overseas where we can just get a quick email update or see a posting on social media or Facebook. No, Paul actually had to go and visit them for updates or receive letters, which were so it would still take a significant amount of time. Right, And so he wants to go there and he wants to visit them. He wants to strengthen them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to see how they're doing. And Barnabas agrees. But Barnabas says, yeah, that's a great idea, Paul. I think we should do this too. And oh, by the way, I'd like to bring John Mark with us. And at that point, you probably could imagine that Paul's demeanor just completely changes. And he says, you know, Barnabas, I just don't think it's a good idea. I just, I don't think it's a good idea that we bring John Mark with us on this trip. Why wouldn't Paul think it's a good idea to bring John Mark? It gives us the answer right there in verse 38. Take a look at it. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. We've actually, we saw this when we were back in Acts 13, if you recall. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey and they are accompanied by John Mark. He's a younger fellow, right? And he's kind of serving as maybe an apprentice, as, as a helping hand on the trip. And on the journey, the three of them sail to Cyprus, 
which was, which was east of Antioch, or excuse me, west of Antioch in the Mediterranean Sea. They travel through Cyprus from east to west, and they do ministry there, and they evangelize. And then they sail from Cyprus up to this region, Pamphylia. They, they, they sail to a city called Perga in Pamphylia. And as soon as they arrive there, according to Acts 13, John Mark jumps ship and returns back home. Now, we have no idea why he went back home. But what we do know was this was his decision. Sometimes when you're out doing ministry or you're on the mission field, missionaries will tell you that there are, there are circumstances outside of their control that cause you to either shift direction or to retreat back home. And this is not the case with John Mark. This was not some kind of an outside event that caused John Mark to return home. No, John Mark left willingly under his own volition. And Paul feels slighted by this. Even so now, several years after the fact. And so when Barnabas says, hey, let's bring along John Mark, Paul says, absolutely not. But then you've got Barnabas, who just goes to bat for this guy. And what we see is this sharp, intense disagreement between the two. And I want us to consider the matter from both men's perspectives, right? Let's paint a picture of this. In one corner, you have Paul, who is just a titan of intellect and of reason. And and what we know about Paul is he is is adamant and passionate and values the, the mission and the expansion of the good news of Jesus Christ above all else. He will do whatever it takes to be able to get to the end and say, mission accomplished. And so Paul, he doesn't come into this argument uh, from a relational point of view. Frankly, it doesn't seem he cares about Mark's feelings. No, he views Mark as a hindrance to the mission. Mark is a liability. From Paul's perspective, Mark is just baggage. And the work of the gospel is at risk if we take him. Paul is saying, Barnabas, it's not wise for us to bring Mark given his track record because he's a defector. He's unreliable. And who's to say that he won't do it again? This is a classic case of fool me once, shame on you, but fool me twice, shame on me. And I can understand Paul's perspective here because I don't know, think, I think a captain in the military would be very receptive to a soldier who had abandoned his post, who previously deserted his unit on a prior mission. Paul makes a very valid point here. However, let's not all just jump into Paul's corner just yet. Let's consider Barnabas's perspective. It's actually not stated in the text why Barnabas wants to bring uh, Mark along, why he's so adamant about it. Uh, It's possible that there's some family preference here. If you were to go to Colossians 4.10, you would actually find out that John Mark is Barnabas's cousin. So there's a chance, but more likely than that, I think we can infer that Barnabas wants John Mark merely based on what we know of Barnabas's character. Think about who Barnabas is. 
right? We were introduced to Barnabas way back in, in Acts chapter four, and we're actually told that Barnabas's real name is Joseph. But it was the apostles who called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Basically, this guy Joseph is walking around and he had such a reputation for encouraging people that they just decided to call him the son of encouragement. Barnabas would come walking down the street and they say, hey, there's that encouraging fellow right there. There's that guy that's always encouraging people. And the nickname just kind of stuck with him to the point where people don't know him as Joseph. They know him as the encouraging one, Barnabas. Barnabas is the relational guy. He's the one that's willing to give second chances. He's the one who's willing and quick to be gracious and compassionate. In fact, what makes this uh, disagreement all the more compelling is that Paul at one point was the recipient of Barnabas's graciousness and compassion. Think back to Acts chapter nine. If you recall in Acts nine, Paul, who was in Damascus, ministering in Damascus, flees from Damascus out of a basket in the side of the city walls because it was uncovered that there was a plot to kill him. And so he flees from the city. And where does Paul go? He goes to Jerusalem with the specific purpose to join the disciples there. Now remember, Paul, before he became a follower of Christ, persecuted Christians. He considered it his personal uh, role and responsibility to apprehend believers and punish them, sometimes punishable by death. And so, of course, when Paul strolls into Jerusalem as a fairly young believer at the time, the disciples are skeptical. The disciples are actually scared of him. No one really wants to be around Paul because they're not sure if he truly has become a believer. They're not really willing to give him a chance. But who stands by his side? Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who takes Paul under his wings and brings him to the apostles. It's Barnabas who goes to the apostles and say, hey, we should give this guy a chance. I know it's risky, but we, we should give this guy an opportunity. And so it wouldn't be surprising to me at all if in this debate here in Acts 15, if at one part Barnabas played that card and he said, Paul, don't you remember how I vouched for you? Don't you remember how I was gracious to you? How I gave you a chance? How I went to bat for you? And you know what? It was risky. It was was probably more risky than bringing Mark with us on this trip. And so why can't you just extend the same kind of confidence to Mark that I did for you? Now, I would imagine that Barnabas would agree with Paul that what Mark did was egregious. But from Barnabas's perspective, past failure shouldn't disqualify someone or preclude someone from future opportunity. In Barnabas's opinion, a one and done attitude would be terribly harsh and frankly, contrary to what God has done for us. That's the picture. We clearly see two different sides in this debate presented in the text. 
to, to put simple, one commentator writes that this is a classic example of a perpetual problem of whether to place the interests of the individual or the work as a whole first. And before we sit here and start taking sides in the debate between Paul and Barnabas, I want to point out what's glaringly absent from the text. Sometimes God's word is very powerful in what it doesn't say. And you'll notice that there is no indication of who was right and who was wrong. It doesn't say. And the reason the text doesn't indicate who is right and who is wrong is because this is a gray area. This is one of those non-essential issues. Take note that the, the disagreement is not a matter of immorality. It's not a matter of heresy. They're not arguing or debating whether sexual immorality is okay or not. That was already determined in the previous passage. They're not debating whether we are saved by our works or we are saved by God's grace. That was already determined in the previous passages because there's a clear right answer and a clear wrong answer. No, in this passage, what we have is two very godly men who are fully committed to Christ and the work of Christ, arguing over an application of biblical principle. At its very core, this is a philosophical argument, a debate where both sides have valid arguments. Unfortunately, these are the type of arguments that are most prevalent among believers today. And because both sides have a valid argument, it's very easy for the evil forces of the world to take advantage of the situation and drive a wedge of division through the body of Christ. Because whenever two believers argue about something, the debate doesn't stay between the two of them. No, it affects the surrounding community. It's like, it's like a windshield, if you will. Let's say you're driving down the highway behind a semi-truck and a little pebble comes up and hits your windshield and nicks it the tiniest bit. You look at that nick and you may not think it's a big deal, but over time, left unchecked and unresolved, that little nick grows into a giant crack and it eventually affects the entire windshield. Our isolated disputes never remain isolated because we are in a community. We are in a community of believers and our isolated arguments between each other, when they happen, the spectators in the community that are watching, the spectators soon become participants because people take sides. It is in our human sin nature to take sides. Even this morning, as we worked through this disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, you may have found yourself agreeing with one or the other. I'm sure that if we took a straw poll this morning, we'd have a healthy group on both sides. You'd get half the room that said, I agree with Paul, and you'd get half the room that said, no, I agree with Barnabas. And that's just a small example of the fragmentation that can occur when two believers argue about non-essential things. Division between two believers, unchecked and unresolved, 
can quickly become division within a whole body of believers. And when that happens, great fallout occurs. And we see fallout, a great fallout happen here in verse 39 between Paul and Barnabas. We've already established that it was a disagreement, but in verse 39, it clarifies that it was a sharp disagreement. That adjective sharp means that this was a, most likely a heated debate. There was some serious contention and emotions probably ran high between the two. So much so that they determined that it was best to go their separate ways. Remember the original plan in verse 36 was for them to go together and they agreed on that mission. And so they don't separate because it's some kind of strategy. They don't divide because they think this is what's best for the mission. No, they divide because of the sharp disagreement with each other. They, they get to the end of the conversation and they say, you know what? You're just stubborn and you're ignorant. And I think it's just best that we agree to disagree. And we're going to go our separate ways. And we're going to be just fine. Barnabas takes Mark. He sails to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas, who was one of the two men that had come from Jerusalem in the earlier chapter. And uh, they, they go through Syria, Cilicia. And I want you to consider the ramifications of this. Consider the intensity of the fallout here. The intensity of just this one disagreement. Paul, Paul and Barnabas were like two peas in a pod. They've been traveling together since Acts chapter 11. Uh, to this point, they have been ministry partners for several years. They've faced death together. They've traveled with each other. They've slept by each other's side, right? They, they, they've, they've, saved, they've experienced so much of life together and have this extremely strong bond. Those type of things create bonds. When I served in youth ministry, the most fruitful moments, the most unifying bonding experiences were the, the overnight trips, I'm telling you, there is not much more that you can bond over than sleeping in each other's body odor. <laughs> and if you've ever slept in a cabin full of middle school guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's unifying. It's bonding. You come away from those trips feeling like brothers and sisters. And this was, this was Paul and Barnabas. They, they were like brothers. They were close. If you did a word association and I said Batman, you would say Robin. If I said Scooby-Doo, you would say Shaggy. And if I said Paul, you would say Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. That's how close these guys were. Yet this one sharp disagreement drove the wedge of division between them. And it feels as though a friendship has been broken. Perhaps you know what that feels like. A friendship being severed because of a non-essential issue. But here's the hope that we have in this passage. While it seems as though division has won the day, the word of God still goes out to the nations. That is the reoccurring theme throughout Acts that we have seen over and over and over and over again. Whenever there is an obstacle, we are always left at the end of the passage, but then the word of God went out, right? So just put this up on the checklist of things that cannot stop the gospel. Persecution cannot stop the gospel. Threats of harm cannot stop the gospel. 
Not even death can stop the gospel. And division within the church cannot stop the gospel. The word of God will go out to all nations. And in this passage, it actually goes out twofold. We're told that they go their, their separate ways. Paul ends up going on his second missionary journey because of this event. We can have a hope that while we will have sharp disagreements, while our pride will get the best of us, God overrules our disagreements. We can rest in God's sovereignty and know what the devil intends for evil. God means for good. I have no doubt that Satan got his mileage out of this split. But at the end of the day, the missionary effort doubled in manpower. Now, instead of one team going out, there's two teams going out in two separate directions. While the evil one meant to snuff out the gospel work, he in turn played right into God's hands and it thrived. It's the beauty and the hope in this passage. That despite our division, despite our disagreements, it's ultimately God who rules and he overrules such things. Now, before we close the chapter on this story, there's one more bit of application that we need to address because I believe that people use this passage incorrectly. At the end of the day, while God is indeed sovereign in this mess, this is still ultimately a sad event. Yes, God fixed it and he made it right as one does, but Paul and Barnabas separating is a sad thing. From a human perspective, this should have never happened. And we should never assume that this is the norm when there is a disagreement among Christians or Christian leaders. Some people use this passage and say, it's okay that I'm fighting with my brother and sister in Christ. In my first year, my first experience as a youth pastor, I was a part of a small church out of state and after being there a couple of years, our small church tried to merge with, with another small church so that we could make a slightly bigger small church. And after a year of trying this, where we kind of merged the elder board and merged the congregations and merged the pastors, after about a year, we just realized that this wasn't working out. The, the two sets of leaders from the two churches that merged just couldn't agree. They, they, they just couldn't and there was great division and so they decided after a year that they were just going to split the church back up again. One of the elders sat down with me and said, you know, Mike, we're, we're going to split the church back up and we're just going to pretend that this never happened. And then he proceeded to use this passage as justification for their actions. This, is a, this was a painful time for my wife and I. And we decided ultimately to leave just both churches that had split off. I have felt this passage before. I, I have seen this passage play out before my very eyes. I have felt the sincere pain of division and separation. Sharp disagreements and arguments that caused separation changed my life. And so I would ask that we don't use this passage as justification. 
Because while God does redeem the mess that we make, we are still called under Christ to live in harmony with one another. And we must remember that in our sharp disagreements, reconciliation is always the end goal. It's always the end of the goal. The end goal of the gospel is reconciliation between each other and between us and God. And we can have hope in light of all scripture that there was reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas and even Paul and Mark. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks very highly of Barnabas. And more, and even more significantly, if you were to go to first, or excuse me, second Timothy chapter four, I actually want to show this text to you. Second uh, Timothy four, nine and 11. This letter was a letter that Paul wrote to his apprentice, Timothy, who's going to come into the story and acts here pretty soon. He, he wrote this near the end of his life while he was in prison in Rome. Paul is sitting on death row for preaching the gospel And he's writing to Timothy and he gives Timothy at the end of his letter, personal instructions. In verse nine, he says, do your best to come to me soon. Presumably because he was going to be put to death. But Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, if you want to see me one more time, you better come to me soon. There's a sense of urgency. And then look what happens in verse 11. Paul tells Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. In his dying moments, in his final days, Paul wants to see John Mark because he is useful in the ministry. So you see, Paul ends up coming around on Mark. Mark ends up gaining Paul's favor. And what's so significant in our passage is that while there was a sharp disagreement, while there was a split, while there was a friendship severed by God's grace, there was reconciliation. Should we disagree does not mean that bridges need to be burned. All too often in the heat of the moment, when when emotions are high and people are hurt and, and people are disappointed, there are things said or done that they will never be able to live down relationships often go down. It's so sad, but they often go down in a blaze of glory. And it's so, it's it's imperative that as believers, despite our disagreements, that we truly honor and truly love one another another in hopes of reconciliation. This is why when I have a disagreement with somebody and it might get tense or heated, I will always end the conversation by looking at the the person in the eye and I will ask them, for the sake of Christian unity, are you and I okay? Can we leave this conversation still disagreeing, but being okay for the sake of Christian unity? Because reconciliation is always the final goal. Once again, it's our goal with one another. And that ultimately points to our reconciliation with God. This is the marvel of the gospel. That while I lived dangerously rebellious towards God and against God, while I burned the bridge down between him and I, he built it back. Not because of anything I've done, but because of his graciousness and because of his goodness, because of what he has done. 
in God's perfect holiness, he has rebuilt the bridge that we burned down in our sinfulness. Take a look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are a new creation. We are made new. We have been given the righteousness of God. And how is this possible? How do I become new? Because through Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We must remember that in our human nature, in our original sin state, we were enemies to God. But God made reconciliation with us and forgave us through Jesus. Reconciliation is always the end goal in any break in relationship and most importantly, in our relationship with God. There was a barrier between us and God because of our sin towards him. We were separated from him. We were cut off from him. We were broken off from him, yet he took the initiative to pursue us and offer reconciliation through the work of Jesus. And if you have not turned in submission to Jesus, you have yet to be reconciled to God. And I would encourage you to not let another day go by separated from God. And so would you turn to Jesus for reconciliation? Let's pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its truth. I thank you, Father, that while we do a pretty good job trying to distance ourselves from you and in our sin, uh, we were separated from you, Lord. I praise you that you bridged the gap. Lord, I pray that um, if there is anybody in our lives right now that we need to reconcile ourselves to, that you would impress them on our hearts and that we would pursue them like you pursued us. Father, I know of broken relationships. I have felt broken relationships, and I know there are people in this room who feel that there are relationships that cannot be reconciled, that cannot be redeemed, and cannot be restored, Father. But we know, Lord, that if we can be reconciled to you, we can be reconciled to everybody else. Not because of our own doing, but because of your graciousness to us. And for that, we praise you and give you glory. And in your holy name I pray, amen.